Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tuso. And I'm Ann Friedman. Hi, Ann Friedman. Hello, hello. <laughs> How's it going? Oh, you know, I'm in the last few weeks of a book deadline. I don't know if you were aware of that. <laughs> wow, that sounds really hard, Anne. I, like, I hope you're feeling supported and you really meet your deadlines. <laughs> uh, somehow it's easier to talk about it if it's like it's other people's deadline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm fully disassociated from, from that process. Uh, okay, but we're still here. And we're excited to be here. On our agenda today, we're talking about legal efforts to extend the Me Too conversation beyond just like firing or dealing with men who behave badly or people who behave badly. And we're also going to talk about policies that might actually be helpful in fostering a more inclusive work environment. We set a very easy task for ourselves, didn't we? (laughs) Right. We set a really easy task for ourselves. I think also, you know, the reason that both of us are interested in talking about this is because, one, it's, you know, like, let's keep talking about Me Too and the conversations that have come out of that. But also because we both notice that the conversation often stops at... Like, we're all in agreement that, uh, you know, being harassed at work is not great. Well, I will say most of us are in agreement about the fact Right. Some of us think it's no big deal. Uh, (laughs) Some of us definitely think it's no big deal. Some of us uh, definitely think that only certain people should be doing that work. But I think that one thing that is true across the board is that we don't talk about it enough as a labor issue and the kinds of solutions and policies that can come out of that and can really start to shape how do we move forward. And so it's something that we talk about privately a lot and have also been like really interested in exploring. Oh my God. So did you see this totally obnoxious like Kanye on David Letterman clip? I can't even believe no, I said on David me. Letterman. Like what year is it? On, on David Letterman on Netflix. <laughs> tell me about it. <laughs> I mean, uh, I don't need to tell you about the whole thing, but, you know, I will I will summarize the sort of like Kanye point of view on Me Too, which is that no one person is all bad or all good, kind of implying that Me Too is trying to categorize some people as bad bad people or like that's what the impulse is. Which in some ways I kind of agree with in the sense of like, yes, like not everyone is all good or all bad, but like uh, that's why we need to take this extremely seriously and have policies in place because you can't just fully identify one person as like bad and removing them. Like the people who are actually kind of like Harvey Weinstein level predators are, yes, like 100% a problem, but like not the totality of what this is all about. So there's that. And then, you know, and then he kind of veers off into the whole like, oh, court of public opinion. Like, you know, if you're going in front of a jury, you actually get to have your say. But like essentially anyone who makes an accusation, you know, that time honored uh, like critique, which is um, basically if I could summarize it is it's too easy to cancel men who have fucked up like that's his general point of view the irony of a black man whose wife's entire uh you know like uh, activism right now is around uh freeing criminals that have been unjustly accused by the criminal justice system that's not that's something that i'm not even going to touch right now well but 
And yes. watching so, David Letterman be the person who's like, actually, I think women might have something, particularly like women who have experienced harassment and discrimination might feel differently about this than you. Like when David Letterman is the person who's like your right, reality known, check. Har- known harasser and, uh, you know, not employer of women. David Letterman says that, you know, that you're not on the right uh, on the right side. Well, you know, the thing about this Kanye thing, besides being like very infuriating, is that actually like you're right, Kanye. Uh, and it's also not an original thought. I, I will quote this podcast many times as saying this isn't about monsters. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, like welcome to our side. But also, I think that the reason the reason I say that that kind of conversation is always infuriating to me is because, surprise, surprise, we always put the onus on the people who are accused. And I don't want to minimize that being accused of harassment is not um, it's not a big deal. It's actually incredibly a big deal. But we don't center people who feel like they are victims of it. And so how do we even begin to like move on? And find recourse for both parties if we are not in agreement that something like egregious has happened. And also like what are the actual boundaries of what we're talking about? Right. And I think like that actually really gets to the heart of why we wanted to do this episode today, which is finding things that feel like concrete policy, proactive in many cases, approaches to this question feels like the right move exactly for the reason that, oh my God, like one minute you've got highlight, rather low light reels of David Lennerman being a creep on his show. And the next minute he's the one who's like, oh yes, but like think about the people who have been targeted and victimized, <laughs> right? Like like th- this is the very reason we do want to have policies in place. It can't just be like trust certain people to be positive actors when it comes to not abusing their power, frankly. Side note also, did you see or listen to or see any snippets of the Anita Hill commencement speech at Wellesley? Yes, so good. Anita Hill, like very good commencement speaker. I can't believe I didn't have that one on my bingo card. Um, <laughs> I, love a, I love commencement speech season. Here's a relevant quote from her speech. We cannot squander the powerful voices of the millions whose individual and collective voices have become known as the Me Too movement. We cannot squander this moment. And I think that she is, you know, as somebody who thinks a lot about uh, the law, like she's absolutely right because you, like we can harp on and on and on about how everybody feels and try to define a lot of this behavior through, you know, just like feeling or these like very nebulous terms. But I think that in terms of having impact and really figuring it out, like how do we create workplaces that are safe for everyone? We need to start naming behavior and we need to start outlining what it means when boundaries are crossed. Right. And, you know, one thing that I have really been thinking about is watching some of the the choices that the, for example, like Time's Up Legal Defense Fund or some of the concrete Um, you know, sustained actions that have come from the Me Too movement, some of the choices that they've made, I think, are actually really smart. And for, you know, aspects of this movement that were at the beginning decried as like, oh, this is just like some famous women wearing T-shirts or whatever, I have been pleasantly surprised by, for example, the choices that Time's Up has been making. Like, did you read that big article about their work with McDonald's? Or rather, against McDonald's. (laughs) (laughs) 
Time's Up is working with McDonald's. I know. Oh my God. Listen to me like spreading, <laughs> spreading disinfo. Rumors, so. rumors. Uh, no, tell me about it. I mean, so basically like they have looked at the fact that since the organization was founded, they've been hit with thousands and thousands of requests for assistance. And they were like, huh, most of these are coming from low-wage workers. Many of them are coming from people in the restaurant industry, for example. And so they were like, huh, when you think about low-wage and restaurant industry, maybe we should investigate like a large player in that space, i.e. McDonald's. And so they have chosen to strategically target McDonald's, which is they do not feel is out of step with some of the industry statistics about workplace sexual harassment. In one survey, 40% of women fast food workers said they had experienced harassment and more than one in five said that they had faced consequences like retaliation in the form of things like shortened hours or being denied raises when they reported it. So they're, they're sort of like they took this approach of, okay, like these are the requests that have actually come in. It wasn't young actresses targeted by lecherous directors, even though that is 100% like a a horrible problem. But they were like, this is mostly like low wage workers. And we are going to find a large target to strategically bring a lawsuit against to address this issue. And I'm just like, yes, systemic approach. I just got I was really, really pleased when I read this article, not about McDonald's and harassment, but you know, about the approach to to tackling it. known mcdonald's fan and oh my god this is Um, just coming out all wrong (laughs) i just i can just see you right now sitting in a mcdonald's gear eating from mcdonald's french fries just talking about your favorite brand it's all about the Uh, mcflurry for me that's the problem (laughs) (laughs) okay let's focus on the issue of harassment Anne. um you know (laughs) you mean how you're harassing me right now (laughs) um i don't have all the power in this uh in this so you know in this relationship so let's be precise here a thing that i really like about this is that also concretely for as much as me too was really the movement was really catapulted and blown out of the water by these the stories that are coming out of hollywood it's very important to remember that uh low-wage workers have a lot less privilege than all of us. And so expanding out your lens to think like, oh, like what happens to people who have way less power than me? Like we're not surprised at all at what is going on there. The reason that this this McDonald's lawsuit is interesting is because they're going after a really big fish, you know, and really thinking about what all sorts of other companies can do. And so uh, yay for solidarity across uh, across working lines. Yes.
know, we also wanted to talk about, like, not to drag this back to Kanye again, you know, rather wow. than... known Kanye West fan, and Friedman. <laughs> oh okay. my God, stop it. <laughs> McDonald's, Kanye, tell me. Uh, I... But I was going to say that, like, that critique, you know, how can it really be a movement if it's just focused on, like, you know, socially ostracizing men who have screwed up, which, you know, is not what Me Too is about. But I do think that being able to sustain a movement means also looking toward proactively what is it about? Like, not just how are we reacting when we hear about some isolated incident that's bad or even a systemic set of problems that are bad, but, like, how are we kind of looking forward and saying, like, okay, in the future, how are we going to ensure more inclusive workplaces? What are the, like, policy level and systemic proactive fixes? And so we wanted to go, like, back into the vault and talk about something called the inclusion writer. Ooh, love the inclusion writer. Uh, you know, part of why we want to talk about it is that we have been, we were writing about uh, Shine Theory for the book and the inclusion writer came out in, um, in that conversation. So you probably heard of the inclusion writer from Frances McDermott's 2018 Oscar speech when she mentioned it. At the Oscars in 2019, Frances McDermott wore a custom Birkenstock. So that's what I remember her for. But the rest of you... <laughs> You'd uh, forgotten astute. about the inclusion writer by then. <laughs> right, I had forgotten about the inclusion writer by then. Um, but, you know, it's like she she shouted out, like, those two words. And I think she said, like, look it up, inclusion writer. And she was obviously talking to people in the room. My favorite thing about award shows, they're really just a party for your colleagues. And Hollywood ones, we get to all look it on, but it's the same thing. So... The story of the inclusion writer is that it's basically just a contract stipulation where, you know, if you're a big name in Hollywood, you can leverage your power and your being on a project on certain facts. There are already people who do this. Michael B. Jordan already is famous for some of this. So saying like, I'm Michael B. Jordan. If I'm going to make Creed at 17 or whatever, <laughs> um, part of that is going to include, listen, they're going to make that movie ad nauseum. It's going to include, uh, you know, in order to get me to be on this movie, you also need to hire X number of people who look like this or do this certain kind of thing. The crew is going to be composed of a certain kind of person also. The reason that I like it is that people proactively using their power for something. What's the point of being a powerful Hollywood person if you're not going to use it for something? Completely. And I think that this idea, too, of like people of all kinds of demographics have abused their power in the past, right? Like, it's not like it's a hedge against all Me Too type behavior. But like, one reason why I think it's so important to talk about it in the context of something like Me Too and Where Do We Go is because it is really thinking specifically to yourself, like, what is the power that I hold in my profession, in my workplace? And how do I extend that power to people who might have less of it? And I think like at its core, that's going to be the sort of thing that solves or lessens at least his systemic harassment and discrimination is like people being like, how do we spread this power around? Right. And it also just goes straight to that question that people always ask, like, what can I do? <laughs> um, and it turns out that there is a lot that you can do. And, you know, this is this is just like a place to start. Right, which is why we ended up writing about it in the context of Shine Theory, because it, it has to do with, like, really investing in the people around you as well. It's a way of extending yourself in a way that also benefits you. 
So I'm really excited this week that you talk to Kalpana Kotagal, who is a civil rights attorney, and she's also one of the co-authors of The Inclusion Writer. And so, you know, you and her talk about exactly what it is and how it's helping bring equity to Hollywood's hiring practices. Kalpana, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm psyched to be here. Okay, so for... Many listeners, I think, if we said the words inclusion writer, they would be picturing Frances McDormand on the Oscar stage, and that's probably it. (laughs) Um, Maybe not. Maybe they did a Google. Um, I would love to hear you explain, like, what an inclusion writer is and sort of what function it serves. It is a contractual provision. It's a rider to a contract, and the idea is that somebody with power in Hollywood or in other industries could take that rider into negotiations with the studio so that through the use of their bargaining power, they can achieve a more diverse film production for hiring and casting on screen and behind the camera that will deepen diversity primarily in small roles and in crew roles on movie movie productions. So that's what it is. It's It's pretty nerdy, but it obviously totally blew up um, at the Oscars last year. Yeah. And what is it? What does that look like in practice? I mean, the reason something like this is important is because these are not assumptions that people in decision making roles have in terms of who they want to give work to and that sort of thing. So like, let's say I care about this idea and and want to somehow bring it into being in my own life in my own way. What does that look like? So it looks different for different people, right? But for like Michael B. Jordan, for example, who has done just that, it looks like going to Warner Media or Amazon and saying, for every production that I do with you, we are going to think more consciously about who we interview and who we hire and who we cast for these roles. And the, you know, the writer that we developed really focuses on like small roles where Fixing the diversity in those roles is not going to impact like the story sovereignty or have First Amendment implications. And so through that like bargaining process, basically, you and Friedman or Michael B. Jordan or any number of other stars could say, I want the community that takes shape on screen in my movie and the hiring of the crew behind the camera to look more like the demographics of our society today by looking for folks who are really highly qualified, but happen to come from backgrounds that are, you know, historically underrepresented. And tell me about how this idea came about, because this wasn't like, you know, just a last minute whim, someone stood up on the Oscar stage and said it. I would love to hear about your process. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, if you go back to the beginning, there's a Hollywood Reporter op-ed that my co-author Stacey Smith wrote that came that sort of proposed this idea of using a contractual provision to improve diversity on screen for these smaller roles. So that's like the kernel of the inclusion writer. You know, Stacy has done research over the last, I don't know, decade plus on representation in Hollywood. And so she is really the expert on the data. And then she started working with our third co-author, Fanchon Cox, who is um, at Pearl Street Films, which is Matt Damon and Ben Affleck's production company. Um, And the two of them said, yes, we want to do this. We want to figure out how to make this idea real. But they needed a lawyer. And so um, my colleague... (laughs) As we often all do. As sometimes we do, right? And so my colleague, Anita Hill... Connect, had met Stacy somewhere and connected Stacy to me 
And the three of us, Stacey and Fanchon and I, started working on this language. And that was in 2016, right? So we spent more than a year refining, thinking through how to expand it from just on-screen roles to behind the camera, how to anticipate like the the objections we knew we were going to get, quotas and reverse discrimination, like all the things that people talk about every single time we talk about deepening diversity anywhere in American society. We spent a year and a half doing that work and making presentations and meeting with um, with actors and with their lawyers and with their agents. Frances McDormand's agent was in one of those presentations that Stacy gave. And that was like the week before the Oscars. And mm. so Frances came to find out about it from her agent and then, bam, won the Oscars. And, uh, you know, the rest is history, I guess. So I know that this was developed really narrowly for a specific type of like Hollywood contract, perhaps. But for someone listening to this who is not in a position of power signing on to a Hollywood contract, but they're in a middle management job or they are signing a contract for some work, work on a project basis or something that doesn't feel quite so, hi, I'm a celebrity and I can command that you do what I want. Are there ways to bring these principles to the work and the like smaller negotiation that we all might be doing? I'm, I have to tell you, I'm so glad you asked that question. Yes. I mean, really, in most of my career, I don't work with Hollywood people. I work with Wait, what? We thought workers. we were getting a celebrity I lawyer. I know, no, right. <laughs> I mean, I represent like chicken processing plant workers and um, retail sales employees. So yes, right, the underlying principles of the inclusion rider are just best practices for how you can build, really truly build diversity in any workplace. So how could they be applied elsewhere? Any industry, Wall Street, big law firms, the fashion industry, I could see that the same kind of principles and structure of the inclusion rider that we developed for Hollywood could be applied there. But for anybody else who is engaged in thinking about diversity in whatever workplace they influence, whether it's like you're the person who plans big events for your organization, the same principles you can apply to any kind of contractual setting. You can build them into any kind of contract. There was that story last week about conventions in, I think it was in Texas and Dallas, where there are all these like super anti-LGBTQ statutes being passed by the state legislatures. I think the same thing could apply to like states like Georgia, where these horrendously restrictive abortion laws, where companies that are bringing their con their conventions into these big cities are saying, yeah, we're going to build a clause into the contract where we're not coming if the state passes these really super restrictive or discriminatory rules. In the same way, if you were planning big events or planning big conventions, you could build in these diversity and inclusion principles into subcontractors or vendors. Um, and so I think they have expansive application, not just to Hollywood celebs or really anybody with lots of power, but to anybody who's engaged in negotiations. And do you, this is maybe less about the letter of the law, but more about reframing how people think of their personal power and agency mm -hmm. in some of these conversations. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes I know I've been deterred by the idea of, okay, well, I can suggest this, but I'm not the person actually empowered to make this higher or set this panel or whatever. And, you know, I think that there's an obvious counterpoint to that, which is that if we are all essentially 
harping on inclusion writer principles all the time, it becomes the norm that it's done. And I would love your thoughts about, I mean, one reason why we stay on Ruth Bader Ginsburg is because she is so smart on the interplay between what we're all doing culturally and then what like the law or the paper or the policy end of that looks like. I'm wondering if you have thoughts on that as well and how the, the kind of culture or what we're all talking about, even if we're not fully empowered to make the change, what kind of impact that can have. Oh, I think it's so powerful. I mean, I think about this phrase like diversity, equity, and inclusion or diversity and inclusion. It now has its own little acronym. I go places now and I hear people talk about D&I or DE&I. There's like a cottage industry that has sprung up around helping companies get this piece of it right. To me, that really is an indication of exactly what you're saying, which is that if we normalize this, if we normalize our discussion and understanding of how implicit bias infects hiring decisions in a way that is very unstigmatized, we we do have the power to make the kind of systemic change that you're talking about without needing a contract to do it. That cultural change piece, I think, really flows from just a straightforward acceptance or recognition of privilege and the way that it shows up every day in hiring processes, whether it's privilege for white folks, privilege for men, privilege for straight, cis, et cetera, right? Like that, if we can start to talk about that as if it's not particularly controversial, then the solutions to that also become less controversial just as a, a matter of sort of cultural practice. Yes, I love that. And I have experience, and I think a lot of our listeners do, in being the squeaky wheel in the office of saying yeah. like, why aren't we, why aren't we doing this? Or we should be doing this. Um, and the inclusion writer is one nice concrete thing. I'm wondering if there are other tools or ideas that you have seen, or, you know, maybe in, in other workplaces or industries where you work that, that you think, Hey, this is also an, a smart idea that people can take back to the powers that be in their own world and say, okay, well, there's this inclusion writer idea, but also, does anything leap to mind? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm like, I'm with you. I'm totally the squeaky wheel. I <laughs> chair my own firm's hiring and diversity committee work, right? And while we're doing really well on a lot of pieces, like other areas of the law and other parts of the economy, you know, we're not doing great on, on certain things. And so I think being able to learn how to have those conversations in ways that are super honest, but also recognize the kind of inherent fragility of the people that you're often talking to. For me, I found that there is a combination of figuring out who in the leadership of the organization is interested in making these changes and can see the problems. And then also, where are the kind of external pressure points that can be brought to bear to drive that change? Whether it's like other valuable folks in the organization who can see it, or it's external things that are changing in the industry, an opportunity for a competitive advantage. I have to also say, I'm super, I'm a super pragmatist about this. I, it maybe makes me, um, I think out of step in some ways with the generation that's coming up working on these issues. But I'm all about figuring out what the next concrete thing I can fix is, whether it's parental leave or um, our hiring practices or deepening relationships with people who can refer great folks to us. I'm all about the incremental stuff because I think the more concrete changes I see, the easier it is to get the next one. Speaking like generationally, I'm not sure that I experience a huge difference between myself and say people who are 
10 years earlier in their careers. But I do think that there is a sense of not wanting to reward the minimum. Great, you have a committee to do this, but it actually hasn't made demonstrable change yet within your workplace. Or like, you know, things that feel like, okay, maybe we're getting toward a point of change. It can be very easy to say, oh, it's not happening quickly enough, or I don't see this organization as sufficiently committed. And I'm curious about when you draw those power maps, if time is a factor as well of like, okay, like if they haven't shown me that there's a commitment to adopt this in a certain amount of time, I need to take my talents elsewhere. How do you draw some boundaries around this when pretty much everyone now says that they're on board with these ideas, but really the difference is who's actually doing something and who isn't? Absolutely. I mean, I really think that this is this is a total cliche, but you'll know what I mean. Like people who put their money where their mouth is, where you can actually see concrete changes. That's a really important factor. And I would say it's a really important factor to retaining talent. So for people who are leading companies and organizations, you got to get this right. You got to get on it because otherwise you're going to lose talented people. I also think that one of the big generational differences I see, Anne, is in a real comfort with intersectionality in a way that I don't know. And, and maybe this is a reflection of the law being a relatively conservative and slow moving industry on some of this stuff. But I don't know that there are many folks who were thinking 10 years ago about anything beyond race and gender. Mm -hmm. They weren't thinking about gender identity. They weren't thinking very much about sexual orientation. And they certainly weren't thinking about the way that when those identities intersect, people have sort of heightened or expanded vulnerabilities. And I feel like that's starting to break through, not just in, you know, not just in the legal industry, but all over, um, all over American industry in a way that, you know, we're not there yet, but there's a comfort with intersectionality with folks who are, I don't know, maybe five, 10 years junior to me that I don't think I had coming in as a lawyer. And so I, I think that's really, I don't know, I think that's a really powerful part of it. But to your earlier question about like, do you have to be willing to get up and leave if you don't mm. see an organization doing the thing? I would say, yeah, because to some extent, these issues, to a large extent, these issues are reflections of values. They tell you something about what the organization and its leadership really think is important. And if leadership can't understand why deepening diversity or increasing representation matters at a deep and profound level, then there are bigger problems there. Right. I almost feel like part of it is it's as these ideas have become very accepted as ideas and not so much as actions, like it's become harder and harder to tell, for me anyway, who's a genuine kind of good actor who wants to make change and leverage their power versus who is saying what they need to say and being like, yeah, 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 we'll form the committee and then not actually investing. Like who's essentially shouting about the inclusion writer from the stage, but then like not applying it to their own contracts, I think is something that is a lot more obscure and hard to see sometimes. I completely agree. I increasingly see an emphasis on diversity and inclusion folded into marketing strategies, mm. into litigation defense strategies, where companies will say, yeah, but we rank way up on whatever list of, you know, diverse and inclusive companies. But that doesn't get at the, the kind of deeper layers of, 
all right, good for you. Maybe you've promoted some women into the leadership, but are you paying people fairly? Are you treating your workers fairly? Is this really a culture, an expansive culture of workplace equality? Um, And for me, at least, I think the diversity and inclusion piece of it, if we just stop there, if we stop at just the hiring piece, we're missing so much about what makes American workplaces problematic, right? Whether it's pay or it's the lack of paid leave or accommodations, whether it's like, God, I'm, you know, languishing in this mid-level position and I can't get promoted. All of those things are underneath the surface. So if you hire folks, but you don't have a have a structure that is in fact valuing um, of those diverse experiences and recognizing the value that they bring to the organization as an overall, it, it doesn't really matter. I think diversity and inclusion can so easily become like wallpaper or marketing and and not be real. And I completely agree with you that it's gotten increasingly hard to be able to tell what's what. Right. Um, well, and yeah, and just to like pull it back, that's one reason why we did want to have a conversation about the inclusion writer because so often, um, you know, saying, hey, like, this is a thing I can point to, or like, what are, what are your on paper commitments to, to changing this is, um, it's for me anyway, one of the only ways to be, um, to feel good that's that some, someone with power is following through and like doing the work. Completely. And then the other piece of it, right, is that so it's been a year, we know about examples of the inclusion rider being used. Um, but I think that the real story is going to be in the numbers. Like, do they change over the next five years? Can we start to see um, an expansion of roles that include people of color, um, white women, members of the LGBTQ community? Um, how is how are the demographics on screen and behind the camera actually shifting. Um, And if they're not, then we got to go back to the drawing board. It hasn't worked. And the other thing I think is really important about this is that the inclusion writer is like one strategy. It's one idea. It's one way of getting at one set of problems in Hollywood. The problems in Hollywood are, I don't have to, I don't, I don't think I have to tell anybody, just there are so many of them. Um, And they show up in different ways and not surprisingly, different problems need different solutions. The inclusion writer is one strategy and the measurement is going to help us understand whether it's whether it's working and how well it's working so that we can recalibrate it. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, my gosh. This is so fun. I think you guys are doing such great work. Thank you for having me. Uh, a legal queen. <laughs> love, love a civil rights attorney. So after... Um, after we had this conversation about the inclusion writer, we were inspired to, to send some emails to a few other legal queens in, in our lives, in our orbits, and just ask what they have been paying attention to on sort of a, like, what are the lawsuits they're watching or like, what are the policies they're watching that could maybe um, help redistribute some power or change some of these fundamental issues. And what was interesting is a couple of them came back with the same thing which is at its base, the idea of holding outside contractors accountable. So like not just trying to change the policies surrounding diversity and inclusion or harassment and discrimination from within an organization or a company, but saying like, hey, we have these same expectations of any organization that we work with outside of these walls too. Um, And recently, um, you know, this has come up in the context of several tech companies who are requiring outside uh, law firms that they work with to meet 
certain diversity requirements. Right. It's so this applies to mostly contract right contractors, right? Anybody that you work with has to also meet all the requirements, which is good because it means that the the ecosystem, it's like pushing the ecosystem to be a better place. But kind of as you pointed out before we <laughs> before we started recording, is that it's also like fascinating to watch all these companies that themselves don't have amazing track records on issues of diversity and inclusion, push for more diversity and inclusion outside of their own walls. But, you know, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. So I'm going to take it. It's interesting to have, you know, a company like Facebook, for example, that only has about 3% of their senior leadership that is black and Hispanic, which don't even get me started as counting people as just black or Hispanic at your company. But that's a... That's a conversation for a different day, Um, you know, or another company that is doing this is also um, other companies that are doing this are MetLife and HP. I just think that like as a larger kind of labor trend, it's good and it's important, but it doesn't mean that we don't hold these companies like feet to the fire. Also, it's an interesting thing to watch generally. It's funny because it's like, yeah, it is easier to require more of someone else than to get your own house in order, right? Like um, the, the, the more recent part of this news is that 170 in-house lawyers at various companies banded together and wrote a letter saying that like they're going to have this baseline of diversity and inclusion um, that they expect when they're hiring outside firms, which is like very cool. Like I love this idea that people are talking together across companies to sort of say, we all care about this, but, but you're the same, the same factor remains of like, okay, but like of those 170 companies that those lawyers represent, are they doing amazing? Like, it's like, it's sort of a, um, it's sort of a both and right. Like, as you said earlier, that word ecosystem, I think is so important. Like how, how is, um, how are we considering the fact that this is playing out, like not just in one workplace or in one office. And at the same time, it's like, okay. And also what are you doing to get your own house in order? Right. It's like, you know, but the thing that it always makes me think about is how, you know, whenever you get employment paperwork and it has all of that EEOC language somewhere in it, like at the bottom, and everybody signs on to it. And also, we're all agreed that the words equal employment sound amazing. But I think that if you ask most people, uh, you know, who sign those contracts, like, tell me one thing the EEOC (laughs) does. I doubt that, like, on an individual level, we all have a grasp of it. And so... I am really hoping that it spurs something that is something that actually has teeth, you know, and at the same time, like larger change and important legislation is like we need that for work. But um, we also need to have all of the tools to avail ourselves of the laws that we're protected under. Yeah, I mean, and I think like it's interesting because uh, there's a part of me that's like maybe this these companies end up backing their own way into being more inclusive. It's like, okay, if you've got this expectation of outsiders, like how are you not meeting it yourself? Right? Like, like in a weird way, like maybe, maybe there is some sort of leverage for shareholders or like, you know, a a unionized staff or something like that to like really push for more accountability than from within as well. Because what's interesting is I think the people who are making decisions about who to contract with are pretty high up the ladder already. Right? Like they're they're people with a lot of power internally and so like I would be additionally asking those questions of like you know to the point of the inclusion writer how are you also using that um, to influence decisions uh, on the inside of your company 
Right. It's like everybody should use whatever whatever power they have, whether it's a little or a lot, to hold to hold everyone else accountable. That's the only way that this works. Right. I mean, and it's like it's so funny. Like we keep saying that, like as if it's a thing that is easy to do. I mean, I actually no, it's awfully <laughs> hard. <laughs> I know, but I guess I just want to pause and acknowledge that because I I actually think that like when you look at examples of workplaces with like extremely like well defined beliefs about this stuff and and then what they do when someone who is integral to their organization, like, you know, a figurehead or someone who is, you know, like an executive director or really cozy with a donor or whatever. When when one of those people is um, really abusing their power and push comes to shove, it's like people who have great beliefs on paper basically co-signing that abuse of power. And so I think, like, there's also an element of this that's not just use the power you have in some kind of positive sense, but also recognizing that it is going to possibly have negative ramifications for your career too. I mean, it's like if someone won't meet the terms of your inclusion rider or whatever it is that you're asking for or demanding, are you willing to walk away or are you willing to call that out? Or, um, and I, I think that like, that's one of those things that again, the higher up the like echelons of power you go, the more you are actually able to do that, the more security you have, the, the further away from the kind of like low wage service job that, you know, times up is taking on, like the further, the further away from that you go in terms of power and privilege, the opposite ends up actually being true though, right? Like people become more reluctant to give up power as they accrue it. Like they don't think of it as something that they like can spare. Man, um, everybody <laughs> should just be their own little Aaron Brockovich. This is already giving me agita. Oh my God. <laughs> um, I did want to mention though that like one thing this reminded me of, and it's not quite squarely in the realm of discrimination and harassment, but um I remember reading this article last fall, which we'll link to in the show notes, about living wage laws and one way that some large employers are being held accountable is they're being pushed to extend their kind of like staff benefits, whether those are like certain pay raises, um, things like paid vacation and childcare assistance and stuff like that. Health insurance. Yeah. (laughs) Um, They are, they're being held accountable by, you know, various stakeholders to also extend those benefits to contractors, which has the effect of making them actually have teeth because then, you know, people can't just immediately outsource to someone who's paying a bottom of the barrel wage and not offering benefits. So there's a few examples, like a few tech companies like SurveyMonkey and and Google, like where there have been internal movements to get contractors paid receiving benefits to the same degree as staffers. So like, again, like ecosystem level of accountability, where if you are an employee at a company where you do enjoy things like paid vacation and childcare assistance, asking questions like, huh, like is everyone who is getting paid by this company enjoying the same benefits is I think, especially in the tech world, a question that we would all be a lot better off if people were asking that. It just never ends, does it, huh? You always, <laughs> always societal change, something you have to think about every single day, every step of the way. Yeah. What I also keep in mind with a lot of this stuff is like, as if we're not all stretched to the absolute breaking point. Like when I think about all the statistics about how many hours like Americans in particular are working for the amount of like money and benefits they get. And then I'm like, oh, and then we're also supposed to be thinking about like redistributing our power and like holding people above us accountable. And I'm just like, that's our job too. (laughs) 
Well, you know, it's mostly it's exhausting um, at our echelon because the people above us don't do anything about it. That's why it's exhausting. Yeah. Um, so one day we'll eat the rich. But until then, we'll leave you with uh, our favorite RBG quote. <laughs> Generally, change in our society is incremental. I think real change, enduring change happens one step at a time. You know what, Anne? I will see you around one step at a time. Thanks to Kalpana Kotagal, Aaron Bernstein, and Bridget Amiri for being some of our favorite justice-seeking attorneys. You can find us many places on the internet, callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your favorite platforms. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. You can call us back. You can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf, where Sophie Carter-Khan does all of our social. Our associate producer is Jordan Bailey, and this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac. See you on the internet. See you on the internet, boo-boo. Bye.